Okay. Our next speaker is Jeff Robinson. Jeff Robinson received a PhD in marriage and family therapy from Brigham Young University. Um, he, uh, there's a lot more information on him, but I want to give him as much time as possible since we already cut into his time for a, by a few minutes. So come on up, Jeff. I appreciate the lack of introduction. I am by profession a marriage and family therapist. And for about 25 years, much of my practice has been counseling Latter-day Saints who experience same-sex attraction. Most of them have been Latter-day Saints who desperately want to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. In preparation for this, my wife and I did some calculating and figured out that, that at a conservative estimate in the last 25 years, I've spent 15 to 20,000 hours in face-to-face conversation with young men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction. You can learn a lot in that much conversation, especially if you listen carefully, and I've tried to listen carefully. I also completed a doctoral dissertation in which I did a qualitative study of Latter-day Saint men who reported that they had overcome same-sex attraction. So occasionally, somebody refers to me as an expert on this topic. Whenever I hear that, I think about a Mark Twain quote, a compliment that he gave. He said, the dog is man's best friend. This alone is discouraging. (laughs) And if you ever hear somebody... introduced as an expert in this complex, baffling, and difficult issue, keep that in mind. If they're an expert, this alone is discouraging. I tell my clients that they should not believe anybody who is an expert, but they should ask themselves and ask themselves four questions. Is what I'm hearing logical? Does it make sense? Does it match my experience? Does it feel right? And is it compatible with my deeply held spiritual and religious beliefs? This matter is so controversial with so many different voices, each person will need to ask themselves those questions and decide for themselves, does this feel right? Is it logical? Does it make sense? Latter-day Saints who experience same-sex attraction often face an overwhelmingly difficult and seemingly unsolvable dilemma. How do I reconcile my strong feelings and attractions and arousal towards my same gender with the devotion and love that I feel towards the gospel of Jesus Christ? For many, this dilemma becomes apparent early in their teenage years. It is frequently accompanied by almost unbearably painful emotions. These often include intense guilt, shame, confusion, hopelessness, and an overwhelming sense of isolation. I have never forgotten the words of a young client who said to me that he had prayed to his Heavenly Father, please, God, let me die so I can stop being such a horrible person. If we do not understand this kind of pain, then we do not understand the experience of same-sex attraction as it occurs in the lives of many Latter-day Saints. 
Over the last 25 years, I have spent thousands of hours in these kinds of conversations. The great majority of the individuals I have spoken to are seeking assistance in more fully living the gospel of Jesus Christ and hoping to be able to do something about these feelings. In all that time, I do not recall a single conversation in which I talked to anyone about changing their sexual orientation. I make it clear to them that regardless of any therapy we do, it will not reduce their ability to become aroused to someone of, the own gen- of their own gender. Yet in spite of this lack of change in sexual orientation, many of these individuals find their feelings of same-sex attraction become much less of an obstruction to living the gospel and moving forward in their lives. How can this be? I tell the people that I work with that the single biggest thing I can do to help them is to help them to think differently about what they are experiencing, about the issue of same-sex attraction. In order for them to think differently about it, Not only do I not talk about changing their sexual orientation, I talk to them about the idea that even thinking in terms of having a sexual orientation is not very helpful. Let me illustrate that point. Suppose for a minute that I hold my pen out and then I let go of it. What will happen to it? It falls. That's easy, but why will it fall? What makes it fall? Most people will answer that question with a single word, gravity. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know why it falls. Science has yet to have a complete explanation for gravity. We just know that everything that is unsupported falls. And we call that gravity. And then we do something very interesting. We label it as gravity, and then we talk about it as though we have explained it, when all we've really done is label it. Why do things fall? Well, because of gravity. Well, how do you know there's gravity? Well, because things fall. But why do they fall? Well, because of gravity. See, it simply goes in a circle. Calling it gravity adds no new information to the fact that things fall. It simply makes it more convenient to talk about. We do the same thing in the social sciences. Take, for example, the concept of self-esteem. Self-esteem began as a description of what people were doing. People who said or thought good things about themselves were thought to have high self-esteem. People who said or thought bad things about themselves were said to have low self-esteem. But what began as a description of what people were doing, thinking or saying good or bad things about themselves, quickly came to be talked about as though it was the reason they were doing it. So why is that person saying such bad things about himself? It's because he has low self-esteem. How do you know he has low self-esteem? Well, because he says such bad things about himself. But why does he say such bad things about himself? Well, low self-esteem. Again, it goes in the circle. This form of reasoning is common in our culture, and it permeates and dominates the social sciences. We diagnose, label, categorize, and classify people. And then we explain their behaviors and traits as though they were occurring because of these diagnoses, labels, categories, and classifications. We label and then talk as though we have explained. In many instances, this habit may be relatively harmless and it might occasionally do some good. 
I fear, however, that when it comes to the issue of same-sex attraction and the way many individuals think about themselves and their feelings, this habit does great harm. Why is that person sexually attracted to his same gender? Well, it's because he's gay. Really, how do you know he's gay? Well, he's attracted to people of the same gender. But what makes him do that? He's gay. See, again, it just goes in a circle. Through our labels and classifications, we have created a different kind of person, a different species, the homosexual or gay person. We have identified and labeled something called a sexual orientation and given it power to cause people to have certain kinds of intense feelings and desires. When I meet with clients, I always ask them this question. If you could get an answer to any question regarding this struggle that you're having, what would your question be? Almost universally, most, most of them say, my number one question would be, why? Why do I have these feelings? Much of their confusion, shame, and hopelessness appear to hinge on their not understanding why they have these feelings. Thinking clearly about cause seems central, not only to decreasing their confusion and shame, but also to recognizing what reasonable or credible options might be open to them. Now, most ways of understanding cause when it comes to same-sex attraction fall into five main categories. I want to describe each of those to you. And then I want to tell you which one I think contains the most truth and therefore is in the long run more helpful and hopeful than the others. This is dangerous ground. Because of the overwhelming pain often associated with same-sex attraction, many individuals and groups hold strong beliefs regarding its cause and feel threatened and even angry if those beliefs are questioned. I don't blame them. Many individuals have wrestled long and hard deciding what they will believe regarding the why of their feelings. They often feel that they have finally found understanding, peace, and direction for their lives based on their answers. But for many others, none of the answers they have considered have brought them peace. It is to those individuals that I offer an invitation to think differently about same-sex attraction. The first explanation that many people have turned to when trying to understand the cause of same-sex attraction is that individuals have somehow chosen to have those feelings. <clears throat> In some ways, this seems to be a good explanation. It gives the impression of being compatible with our beliefs regarding agency. And it appears to offer a solution. If I am choosing to have these feelings, then I can choose not to. If I just try hard enough to repent, I can stop these feelings from occurring. However, the consistent experience of the overwhelming majority of Latter-day Saints who experience same-sex attraction is that they have, at least at some point in their life, wanted desperately to be free from these feelings. They have no sense of having chosen them. Many describe praying to the point of exhaustion, pleading with the Lord for the strength to stop thinking and feeling this way. The belief that they have somehow chosen to have these feelings 
has produced not a solution, but instead has contributed to feelings of shame, guilt, self-loathing. It has also led many to eventually question their belief, their faith, and their relationship with God. A second explanation that people have sometimes turned to as they have attempted to understand the cause of these feelings is, is that same-sex attraction is actually a symptom of deeper emotional or psychological problems. These deeper problems are sometimes thought to result from unmet emotional needs in childhood. In this way, in this way of thinking, same-sex attraction is less a matter of morality and more a matter of psychopathology. This would explain why people who experience these attractions have no sense of ever having chosen them. It would also explain why these feelings are so difficult to stop. And here the central solution to the dilemma for same-sex attraction shifts from one of repentance to one of therapy and emotional healing. Many people, however, find this explanation offensive. They do not want to consider themselves to be psychologically or emotionally damaged goods. For many, the results of therapy based on this approach include not change in sexual desires, but only continued shame, now compounded by disappointment, frustration, and a sense of personal failure. Currently, when attempting to understand the cause of same-sex attraction, most people accept a third explanation, that those who experienced same-sex attraction were born that way. According to the popular understanding of this explanation, all sexual and romantic feelings to one's own gender are entirely biologically determined. This, this perspective suggests that such feelings are an indication of who a person really is in the most fundamental biological sense. The idea that people are born that way does seem to solve several problems caused by the previous two explanations. Unlike the idea that people choose these feelings, it does not imply that same-sex attraction is an indication of moral failing. Therefore, it appears to reduce unnecessary and harmful guilt and shame. Also, unlike the idea that these feelings are a symptom of mental illness, it reduces the probability that individuals will feel psychologically broken or defective. It can also relieve the guilt placed on parents who may believe that it was defective parenting that caused the problem. For many people, this explanation also radically shifts the responsibility for a resolution between feelings of same-sex attraction and the teachings of the church. It is no longer the individual who can or should change or repent, but it is those who embrace a traditional view of chastity that must reevaluate their position. Notice something interesting about the three approaches that we've talked about so far. Nearly everyone who has ever taken an introductory psychology class is familiar with the idea of nature versus nurture. Nature commonly refers to my physical body and more specifically to my genetic makeup. 
Nature commonly referred, nurture is generally thought of as any and all environmental factors, including culture. In psychology, these two factors are thought to explain all of human behavior. They make us who we are. Some people, including those of us who hold strong religious beliefs, add a third factor to the nature-nurture mix. This third factor is agency, or free will. It is interesting that the three approaches to cause we have described up to this point reflect these three factors. If we believe that these feelings are chosen, they are a matter of agency. If we believe that they are a symptom of psychological problems caused in childhood, they are a matter of nurture. And if, in fact, people are born that way, they are, they are a result of, <clears throat> of nature. The problem with any one of these approaches is that nearly all of human behavior is now generally understood to be the result of a complex interaction between these various factors and not simply a result of any one of them. Now, <clears throat> over time, as these three explanations have competed for acceptance, a fourth approach to understanding cause has become increasingly popular. This is the idea that understanding the cause of same-sex attraction is actually not very important. According to this approach, the important thing is not why these feelings occur, but how we respond to them. With all of the confusion and contention surrounding the cause of same-sex attraction, might it not be best to simply focus on how a person responds to these feelings? As attractive as this idea can be, there is a problem with it. For many individuals, I have seen the single biggest predictor of how they're going to respond when they begin to have these kinds of feelings is what they believe regarding why they are feeling them. If every time I look at a guy and I'm attracted to him, I think, I was born this way, this is who I am in a fundamental biological sense, that will affect how I respond to them. If I think I'm choosing this, if I was just righteous enough and repented hard enough, this would stop. That will affect how I respond. If I think, boy, there's something deeply wrong with me, boy, I am broken inside psychologically to have these feelings, that will affect how I respond. So although I have a lot of sympathy with the idea that it's response that matters, yet cause still seems to haunt almost all of the people I talk to. Of the four approaches we've discussed, this idea that it's not really important seems to be the most ambiguous when offering solutions. Aside from an ongoing encouragement to live the gospel, and let's never underestimate how important that is, little clear direction is offered regarding how to deal with these feelings. Each individual is left to find their own unique path, little specific direction that might be helpful to everyone is given. Of course, offering no specific solution may be well better than offering solutions that, while well-intended, simply have not worked. So where does that leave us? I suspect that the majority of members of the Church, and particularly young adults, have more or less accepted the idea that people are born that way. Some have embraced this idea consciously and specifically, while others might hold it simply as a vague notion. Of these four approaches we have discussed, why is this one the most widely accepted? 
For most people, a major reason is simply the fact that this is the one they have heard the most. Like name recognition, helping a candidate to win an election. If you were to ask many young adults why they believe that people are born gay, they may respond by saying something like this. Well, everyone knows that. Besides, scientists have proven it, haven't they? By the way, in case any of you are unaware, they have not. They have not. I think there is another reason why so many people in our culture adopt this explanation. The idea that people who are same-sex attracted somehow have a mental illness has been largely discounted. Not a lot of people believe that anymore. <clears throat> and popular opinion has swung away from the idea that people have chosen it, and rightfully so, and rightfully so. So those two possibilities have been eliminated. So with those two possibilities eliminated, for most people, it boils down to some variation of this question. Are people born that way, or did they choose it? I believe that it would be difficult to even assess or understand the impact that that simple phrase and the ideas behind it have had on our culture. This simple dichotomy seems to permeate all conversations and discussions regarding same-sex attraction. Were they born that way or did they choose it? I hear that from PhD college professors and from junior high school students, from gay rights activists and the most conservative Mormons. Were people born that way or did they choose it? If ever there was a, way, a phrase that deserved the title false dichotomy, it would be this phrase. Let me illustrate that with another thought experiment. If you'll just participate for a moment in this. Imagine for just a minute that you have never watched a child learn to speak. Never seen that. And nobody ever described that process to you. Wouldn't the most obvious assumption you could possibly make be that you were born speaking English? Do you remember a time you didn't speak English? Do you remember choosing to speak English? Do you remember working at it? So here is something that's very fundamental to your human experience on this earth. The language with which you make sense out of the entire world. The language with, with which you communicate and establish and maintain the most important relationships of your life. And yet, hear this fundamental thing about you, you did not choose. And you were not born that way. And it would be very difficult or impossible to change. Now, just for the people here who don't speak a foreign language, think for a minute, if I asked you to go 60 seconds without thinking anything in English, go. Most of us can't go five or 10 seconds. So the idea that this thing is acquired doesn't mean that we were born that way or that we chose it. And yet it can be a fundamental part of our experience on this life, in this life. In a similar way, the idea that people were either born gay or that they chose it on closer examination also seems to be entirely unreasonable. 
In my opinion, this idea has been a major factor in misleading and distorting popular opinion regarding the nature of same-sex attraction. So then this leads us to the fifth way or approach of understanding the cause of same-sex attraction. This fifth approach is the one that I believe. It's the one that I believe is the most truthful and therefore ultimately in the long run the most helpful and the most hopeful. When clients seek help from me saying they want to more fully live the gospel, I try to persuade them to adopt this fifth approach to thinking about cause. And I ask them to let it inform their thoughts and their feelings regarding what they are experiencing. What I tell clients is that the fifth approach to cause is simply this. Same-sex attraction is just something you know how to do. I tell them that I'm going to be a human thesaurus. I tell them that same-sex attraction is simply something you know how to do. It is merely something you know how to do. It is only something you know how to do. It is nothing but something you know how to do. It is not a symptom of biological mandates, mental illness, or evil choices. It is simply something you know how to do. Like the language you speak, it is not something you had any choice in. Also, just as you were not biologically destined at birth to speak any specific language, it is not something you were biologically hardwired to do. And finally, as with language, it is not something that can or needs to be fixed or cured. At this point, it would be important to point out that what I've said about same-sex attraction, I also believe about opposite-sex attraction or heterosexuality. I think that all forms of sexuality are acquired, that none of them are hardwired into us. I believe they're acquired in a cultural context that we participate in, but we have little say in. While a person is not born with any specific language hardwired, they are born with a strong propensity to learn language. It's not as though if you worked really hard, you could teach a child to speak. They're born with a voracious appetite for language acquisition. In the same way, somebody may not be born with any specific, hardwired for a specific pattern of sexual attraction, but with a strong propensity to acquire that as their body matures. In a similar way, I believe that, we, that all sexual patterns are acquired. In fact, it seems to me that the idea that people are hardwired for opposite-sex attraction is one of the major sources of confusion regarding same-sex attraction. If heterosexuality is a strong biological imperative, something I was hardwired and programmed for, and if it does not develop in a significant number of people, something really big must have happened. It must take a big cause. It takes something powerful to derail that heterosexual locomotive as it barrels down the biological tracks. But what if all sexuality, like all language, is acquired? What if we're wired to learn it but not learn any specific pattern? Then it may not take nearly as much to get us going in a certain direction. Now, this is to many people, kind of a radical approach. But I believe that this fifth approach, that same-sex attraction is something a person knows how to do, 
is more congruent and compatible with many observable facts that we know about human sexuality than any of the other approaches. Like language, it is compatible with the fact that people who experience same-sex attraction have no sense of having chosen it. It is compatible with the fact that same-sex attraction appears to be difficult to reduce and impossible to eliminate. It is compatible with the fact that most individuals who experience same-sex attraction have at least average mental health, and some have excellent mental health and still experience that. It is compatible with the fact that if a gay man has an identical twin, and therefore identical genetic makeup, there is a roughly 80% chance that his identical twin will not be gay. It is compatible with the fact that those who are born and raised in large cities are more likely to experience same-sex attraction than those who are born and raised in small towns and rural communities. It is compatible with the fact that there appear to be cultures in which same-sex attraction does not exist, and also compatible with the fact that in some cultures, at least for men, some form of same-sex attraction appears to have been almost universal. It was the norm. All men were sexually attracted and aroused by other men. Ancient Rome, ancient China, Greece, other cultures. It is compatible with the well-documented phenomenon of sexual fluidity. The fact that some individuals, in some individuals, sexual attraction does change and morph over time. It is further compatible with the fact that when someone's sexual attractions do change, they don't switch from one attraction to another, they expand their repertoire. They expand their repertoire. Like most things we know how to do, we do not forget how to play the piano when we learn to play the guitar. We do not lose old attractions, but we sometimes get new ones. It is compatible with the fact that the great majority of those who experience same-sex attraction also experience significant levels of opposite-sex attraction. Well documented. Go to YouTube and look at a video by Lisa Diamond. Astounding interesting video. People simply do not fall into the discrete categories that we have constructed for them. It is compatible with the statement of the American Psychological Association regarding cause, that no single factor has been shown to cause same-sex attraction, and that many people believe that both nature and nurture play complex roles. The idea that same-sex attraction is something a person knows how to do fits comfortably with my experience when I was doing my doctoral dissertation. They were recruiting people for me to interview who said, I've overcome same-sex attraction. I'm happily married to someone of the opposite sex. And as I sat down and in interviewed these individuals, each one of them said something like this, I could still do it. I mean, I know how. I could easily do it. I just don't feel a desire or a need to anymore. And I was, this was 25 years ago, and I remember thinking, you could still do it? Oh no, they were going to send me people who had changed. Maybe the next person will really have changed. <laughs> you know? But again and again, I could still do it. Their repertoire had expanded, not switched. The idea that sexuality is something a person knows how to do is also fully compatible with the fact 
that things we know how to do are always influenced by our biology. Let's do another thought experiment. Say for a moment that you took an NBA basketball star and a concert pianist. If you had the ability to look deeply enough into their genetic and biological makeup, do you suppose that we would find genetic or biological factors that correlate with these unique abilities? Without doubt. And yet we would still consider these to simply be things that they know how to do and know how to do very well. We could also be quite certain that while these genetic or biological predispositions might be present, they would not manifest themselves in individuals who were raised in cultures where there were no basketballs or pianos. Now let me illustrate that. All of the clients I work with, I do a, a thought experiment with them. I ask them at some point, I say, I want you to imagine for just a moment that you grew up in the same world that you did grow up in. Same church, same family, same parents, siblings, friends, schools, neighborhood, and you were the same person. Everything was exactly the same in the world you grew up in, except this one thing. That in the world that you grew up in, there was no such thing as same-sex attraction. You had never heard the word homosexual. The word gay only meant happy. Nobody got teased or made fun of or called gay or fag or queer on the playground growing up. There was no gay pornography available anywhere, no gay hookup places, nobody to do anything with, nobody came out of the closet and declared they were gay. Nothing. Nobody whispered about who's gay and who's not or gossiped about what gay people do. You couldn't wonder or worry, I wonder if I'm gay, because there was no category to worry about. Any fantasy you had about another person of the same gender, about sexual activity with them, you would have to have invented it completely on your own. No gay pornography, nothing on the internet, no gay chat rooms, no discussions about homosexuality in any high school or college classrooms, no gay characters on television shows or movies, no gay celebrities, no discussions about the cause of this, nothing. No parades, no marches, no arguments, no jokes didn't exist. And I'll say to them, if you had grown up in that kind of a world, how much of an issue would you have with same-sex attraction? Now, I know that the clients I talk with are not a random sample. We could talk a lot about sampling. <laughs> but the ones that I talk to, when I ask them that question, over two-thirds of them, and most of them quite quickly, say, I would have no problem at all. Because as I go through that list, they're going, check, check, check. People made fun of me. I wondered if it was true. I went to the internet. I looked at this. I looked at these people and wondered if I was having those kinds of feelings. I was interpreting my feelings and on and on. The other, less than a third, say, well, I might still have some of those feelings, but they would be 80 or 90% less than they were. And I tell them the degree to which that is true is the degree to which this is a cultural or sociological phenomenon more than an individual psychological phenomenon. Again, does not mean you had choice, does not mean that it's easy to take care of. But it is more like being a Democrat or a Republican 
than it is like being black or white or tall or short. I illustrate that with a metaphor I use. I'm old enough to remember the very first pictures that were taken of the Earth from outer space. I can see some of you are too. I was born in 1960. The first good quality pictures from space came back in the mid-1960s with the Mercury and Gemini program. And we were astounded. We'd seen aerial photographs of a few square miles, but now you could see the curvature of the Earth and all of Florida and the whole boot of Italy. You didn't see the whole globe until 1968, when Apollo 8 went all the way to the moon. But I remember when I was a kid seeing those and thinking, where do we live? Where do we live? Show me where we live. So somebody showed me a picture of North America. And I, I looked and I could find the Great Salt Lake, and I grew up here in Orm, so I know it was just a little bit south of there, right about in there. That's where we live. But I remember distinctly my first response when I saw that picture of North America from space was confusion. Because I thought, wait a minute, where are all the states? Where are all those different shapes and colors? Where's Utah, that big rectangle with the corner taken out? Where are Canada and Mexico? It's just this big brownish, greenish blur. Where is all that? Because it had never occurred to me that those lines on the map did not occur as natural phenomena. Every representation I'd ever seen of North America had those on it. Now, a couple of thoughts about that. The technical word that most of you are familiar with is a social construct. So a state or a nation is socially constructed, built up socially. Now, a couple of important points about that. Just because something is socially constructed doesn't mean that it's unimportant. People define who they are according to those lines on a map, and people will give their lives to defend those lines on a map. The right circumstances, I might do that. They are the most important things in our life, things that are socially constructed. Secondly, things that are socially constructed, it's not that they have no relevance or connection to the natural world. There has to be land to draw those lines on. We don't make states out in outer space or in the ocean. And many of those lines follow coastlines or rivers or mountain ranges. So these lines are a way of interpreting the world, interpreting land. So the question is, is sexuality in its many different forms and many different labels and many different categories, and most people have become completely confused by the long list of LBGTQPQ things, are these naturally occurring phenomena or are they socially constructed realities? The idea that they're socially constructed is a, is a prominent psychological theory. I'm not just blowing smoke. I didn't make it up. Some of you will be interested in that. I'm going to give you a, a reference. Probably the most thorough article I have seen that delineates this was in the Journal of Homosexuality, January 2015. Quite not a, not a conservative journal. Inhabiting the sexual landscape towards an interpretive theory of the development of sexual orientation and identity. A thorough scholarly discussion about this perspective this perspective. So, while this way of understanding same-sex attraction does not offer easy answers or quick fixes, I believe that it does open up a range of possibilities that the other ways, born that way, chose it, mental illness, or doesn't matter, do not offer. 
Like Buddhism, it follows a middle path. It rejects extreme explanations, which either leave no room for moral agency, or which, on the other hand, ignore the powerful and pervasive influences that our biology and our environment have in shaping and forming, from the Doctrine and Covenants, that sphere in which God has placed us to act. It does not ignore that. This approach decreases shame and guilt. It allows an individual to understand that what they're experiencing is not a matter of bad moral choices. It nevertheless opens up the possibility that they may be able to now exercise their agency in pursuit of chastity. It can be difficult for someone to believe that they can, quote, bridle all of their passions if they are led to believe that their passions are not something they know how to do but are biologically mandated and therefore inescapable. For many of my clients, simply the idea, simply the idea that what they're experiencing is not a symptom of deeper causes. It's not, it is just something you know how to do. It's not something springing up and manifesting itself, which is the medical model, right? Everything is a symptom of something, you know? This idea in itself is liberating. They grab hold of this. The idea that it is something they know how to do also encourages those who experience some, le- some level of same-sex attraction not to discount their experience of opposite-sex attraction. Most of the individuals I talk with experience significant levels of opposite-sex attraction, as we've mentioned earlier. Having grown up in a culture that tells them, however, that if they experience any same-sex attraction, they are in fact gay, often leads them to discount their experiences of opposite-sex attraction. They view them as unimportant anomalies instead of hopeful indications of future possibility. There are a number of other ways in which believing that same-sex attraction is just something you know how to do that allow individuals to find solutions to many of the dilemmas they face. Not perfect solutions and not easy solutions, but at least opens up the possibility of solutions. Some of these solutions I point out to clients. Others they discover for themselves and may be unique. Regardless, nearly all of these solutions are built on the idea that same-sex attraction is just, only, merely, simply, nothing but something you know how to do. Thank you. Now, that was a hard talk, so I'm only going to accept easy questions. (laughs) You have too many questions, but answer some of them. Okay, okay, we'll grab some of these. Anything you can answer, you can put on our blog. Okay, anything I can't answer, I can get a blog. Can you repeat the name of the paper that explores 
this position number five. Uh, Journal of Homosexuality, January 2015, Inhabiting the Sexual Landscape. Are we not hardwired to reproduce? To reproduce. Well, that, that raises a very interesting question. I think, that, I think that reproduction, I think that there are many ways in which our biology directs us in that direction without hardwiring us. And we don't have time to describe that in, in too much detail. But, but yeah, there is a natural course, but it's not necessarily hardwired. What percent of your patients who diligently follow your recommendation have successfully transitioned to heterosexual feelings versus same-sex attraction? Uh, why the date my own daughter standard? So I often, people often say, well, there was a very uh, pro-gay doctor here in Provo who said, these therapists who think these guys can change, and I hope you don't get the idea of change. I hope I was very clear. They learn to accept themselves and to, and to accept what's going on. He said, these therapists, would they want one of these guys marrying their daughter? And I thought, that is an amazingly fair question. And I thought, yeah, I've always had clients that could marry one of my daughters. Most of them, no. But that's okay. It's not most men in general. So, yeah. Per- percentage? I couldn't, I couldn't give you a percent, but I will tell you that those who really are devoted to the gospel and who can overcome compulsive sexual behaviors, um, which is a, a, a tough thing for many people, there's a, a very good success rate. <clears throat> what about exoxenoestrogenes, the thousands of environmental chemicals that are changing the sexes of animals? The animal kingdom isn't environmental, changing our biology. Can't we help by cleaning the water supply and food? I can answer clearly. I have no idea. Um, how available is your, how applicable is your experience to males with same-sex attraction versus females with same-sex attraction? It's interesting. Many men struggle. Uh, it often occurs earlier in life, and it has more to do. It's private and very sexual. For many women, it's more of a relationship-oriented thing that, through which they come to it. Are these two statements conflicting? Gender is an eternal characteristic, and all sexual behavior is acquired. I don't think so at all. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think gender is an eternal characteristic, and I think it is one of those characteristics that will point us in that direction of opposite sex attraction without hardwiring it. So I think it definitely influences. This difference in gender is a draw for most people. And when that becomes confused in some way, that does create some difficulties. But I don't think it's hardwired. Could you comment on the controversial issue of gay suicides? Just a minute, and we'll make this the last question, I promise. This is an issue that we should take very seriously, the issue of gay suicides, and it's in the news a lot right now, a lot. There is much speculation passing as almost established fact that church policies or other things are increasing gay suicide. We simply don't know if that's the case or not. We just don't know. I will make several observations. One, in 25 years of counseling individuals who struggle with same-sex attraction, I have not met a single individual who was thrown out of their house 
or rejected by their family when they came out and talked to their parents or family about this. Not a single one. Now, that doesn't mean that never happens. I clearly don't have a random sample, and I have to believe that that does happen, but in 25 years and hundreds of clients, not a single one was ever thrown out of their house or harshly rejected. What I have seen are quite a few people who have said to their parents, unless you will accept this as an entirely valid kind of relationship and embrace it completely, then you don't love me. And parents have said, we just don't think we can do that, and they will go and tell people, my family rejected me. I have seen that. That's one thought. Second thought, we know that suicide is a sociological, cultural phenomenon in many ways, as much as an individual psychological phenomenon. Everyone's familiar with the idea of chain suicides, that one kid will commit suicide in a high school and within a few months several other kids will commit suicide. They come in clumps. It's interesting that sometimes there are suicide sites, places people go, bridges that they jump off of. There was a bridge in California that was seeing a lot of suicides. Huge controversy about the Golden Gate Bridge, which they have not put barriers up on because it would ruin the aesthetics. But they've studied that, and another bridge, I believe it was in California, lots of suicides, and they wanted to put barriers up, and they said, if you put barriers up there, people will just go commit suicide somewhere else. Well, that's not what happened. They put barriers up, and the suicide rate dropped in that community significantly. That bridge and its availability was an invitation, got people thinking sociologically about it. They were reading stories about yet another person jumping. So take a situation in which you have an impulsive, hurting adolescent. Tell them, tell them that the church, their church and their community are rejecting them. Tell them that science, allow them to believe, even if you don't tell them, allow them to believe that science has clearly established that they were hardwired with these feelings. There's absolutely no hope, even if the feelings, if they have other feelings also. And then tell them that many people in their predicament wind up committing suicide. And I think we're, it's a dangerous mix. I think we should be careful and only speak about what we know for sure. What we know for sure regarding this. I have great concerns about that. I have great concerns about that. These are individuals who are vulnerable, who are hurting, who did not ask to have these issues, and we should be treating them with tenderness, love, and concern, and truth. We should not be allowing them to believe that people come in just fixed categories, that any opposite sex attraction they might experience it might just be sort of a fluke or an anomaly, that no one ever changes, that science has shown that that people are born that way, and exaggerate the level to which these individuals are rejected by their community, and then talk to them about the huge jump in suicide rates that that we just don't know that's the case. I think we should be careful how we speak and careful how we talk while taking that issue extremely seriously. So, we're out of time. Thank you, and because 
Because this is a, a, a tough and controversial issue, at the end of this conference, I'll wait out in the, in the lobby and be happy to talk or answer any specific questions that people have. But thank you again. Thank you.